0: Okay, welcome everybody uh, to this uh, public lecture organized by uh, LSE Ideas. Uh, I am Professor Michael Cox, one of the founding directors of Ideas with Professor Arnie Westad, my partner in crime. Uh, Welcome to all of you and welcome to our speaker this evening, uh, Anne uh, Applebaum. Anne is our sixth. I was checking this afternoon so I got this right, is our sixth Philip Roman professor. Um, the first was Paul Kennedy. Uh, the second was uh, Chen Jian, Chinese historian. The third, Gilles Capel. The fourth, Neil Ferguson. And the fifth, Ramachandra Guha. Uh, an extraordinary array of talent and also an extraordinary range of expertise from world history to China, Islam, and the Middle East to India and now on to the former USSR, um, Russia, and Central Europe. You'll notice I use the term Central Europe, not Eastern Europe. Um, None of this, of course, would have been possible without the very generous support from Emmanuel Romain, uh, whom we welcome here uh, this evening. Anne needs a little introduction. Uh, She has had a distinguished career both in journalism... And as an award-winning author whose books, Between East and West, Gulag, A History, and more recently, Iron Curtain, have won her praise and prizes in equal portion, and much deserved too. Uh, Two of them will be on sale after this lecture for a book signing. Um, This is the fourth and last of Anne's public lectures here at the school. In her last lecture a couple of weeks ago, which I had the honor of chairing, she dealt with Putinism and Putin, and we had a very lively evening. Tonight she asks a question. Does Eastern Europe still exist? I will now leave it to Anne to answer her own question. Could we give Anne Applebaum an LSE welcome, please? Anne, over to you.
1: Thank you very much. Um, thank you once again to LSE Ideas, um, who, who's, in whose company I have very happily spent the last two terms. I uh, very much enjoyed being here, uh, and I will be sorry not to be. Um, uh, thank you also to Manny Roman, who, who has been a, a good friend and supporter of this particular chair. I think it's – personally, I think the investment in historians is a brilliant and very useful um, use, of, use of money of all kinds. Um, <laughs> Uh, uh, the, the question is, uh, will well, let me start like this. A few years ago, um, and I, I see a, uh, a colleague from this magazine in the audience, but a few years ago, and actually it was in February 2009 to be precise, uh, the Economist magazine uh, ran a cartoon which featured caricature versions of Angela Merkel, Nicholas Sarkozy, and Gordon Brown, who were then the leaders of their respective countries. And the three of them were sitting at a luxuriously appointed dining table, uh, their faces frozen in exaggerated horror. And all of them were contemplating a giant bill, at the top of which was written, The Rescue of Eastern Europe. <laughs> and the accompanying article, just to drive the point home, was entitled, The Bill That Could Break Up Europe. Eastern Europe, the article warned in dire tones, had been financially damaged and politically weakened by the international economic crisis. Uh, Eastern Europeans had been, quote, on a binge fueled by foreign investment and the desire for Western living standards. They had botched or sidestepped reforms and they had, quote, wasted their borrowed billions on construction and consumption booms, unquote. Uh, Eastern Europe should, of course, pay the price for its own profligacy, the economist intoned, but Western Europe might well have to step in. After all, if Eastern Europe were to go down in the flames of financial crisis – then proper Western countries like Ireland and Greece might be affected as well.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Now, the rest, as they say, is history. Eastern Europe did not collapse, or at least not all of it and not all at once. Uh, but Ireland and Greece did go down in the flames of financial crisis, and Spain and Italy nearly did too. So Even now, uh, Portugal is still touch and go, Britain is entering a triple-dip recession, and France has soaring unemployment. Uh, to put it bluntly, The Economist was wrong. Uh, four years after that 2009 article, the rich Western countries are not sitting around a metaphorical dining table dispensing largesse to their poor Eastern cousins. Uh, instead, they're wrestling with one another on top of that table while some of the unwanted guests from the East, like, for example, Eurozone member Slovakia, are actually contributing to their rescue. Now, there are a number of conclusions I could draw from the predictive failure of this cartoon. Uh, Clearly, the first and most obvious is this, uh, beware of caricatures in The Economist, as they will soon be out of date. Mm -hmm. I speak here as a former employee of that great institution. Uh, The second conclusion, however, is that maybe it's time we all laid aside our common prejudices about Europe and started thinking about the continent a little differently. Uh, I can put it a bit more strongly, after the events of the past four years, we really should toss out every stereotype, every cliché, and every assumption that has ever been made about Europe's political geography. East versus West, North versus South, none of it really makes sense of what's going on anymore. First and sharpest economic crisis in Europe after 2008 started not in the East, but in Iceland to the far West. Uh, The deepest recession was not in the traditionally slow south, but in Ireland, until recently part of the dynamic north. Uh, The bad debts accumulated by British financial institutions exceed, by many tens of billions, the combined governmental debt of Poland and the Czech Republic, two countries that had no domestic banking failures to speak of. Uh, When it went bankrupt, the government of Latvia buckled down, carried out an austerity program, pulled through, and is now back at 5% growth. Uh, The Greeks, by contrast, faced with the same prospect, rioted, protested, had to institute a government of national unity, and wound up having their economic policy dictated by the EU. Uh, More about those two countries in a minute. Slovakia, a country which had 10% growth rates a few years ago, also experienced a major recession in 2009, but has now returned to 4% growth as well. Poland has not suffered a recession at all and has grown cumulatively 20% since 2008. In general, members of the former Eastern Europe pay lower rates on their bonds, reflecting the fact that nowadays international markets have more confidence in them. Czechs pay 2%, Slovaks pay 2.1%, Poles pay 3%. Meanwhile, the Portuguese pay almost 6%, the Italians nearly 5%, and the Greeks 10%. So instead of dragging down Europe, half of the continent – the eastern half of the continent is now a major contributor, contributor to growth and wealth all over Europe. Um, and indeed, the exports of the 15 countries of old Europe to the 10 countries of new Europe doubled over the past decade. To use, again, some numbers, uh, Britain's exports to the 10 countries that joined after 2004 rose from 2.2 billion in 1993 to 10 billion in 2011 – France is from 2.7 billion to 16 billion, sorry euros, uh, and Germany's wait for this from 15 billion euros to 95 billion euros. So one occasionally hears still someone grumble that EU. enlargement is one of the causes of the current crisis, but the facts should lead us to the opposite conclusion, namely, without enlargement, economic turmoil might have come a lot earlier. Uh, this is not to say that everything in Eastern Europe is going well, but then Eastern Europe can't really be described anymore with a single word like well or badly, uh, because Eastern Europe is no longer a single entity. Now, once upon a time, of course, it was, and when, for when correctly applied, the term Eastern Europe is not a geographical term, but a political term, and it's also a political expression that belongs to a particular historical period. Properly speaking, it refers to the nations which were, between 1945 and 1989, dominated by Soviet-style communism. Uh, sometimes, it also includes the nations which were part of the Soviet Union itself after 1917 or 1918, at least those which are considered to be European and not Central Asian. Uh, either way, this was not a region which was culturally or ethnically homogeneous ever before in its history. Uh, Its inhabitants were Catholic, Greek Catholic, Russian Orthodox, Romanian Orthodox, Lutheran, Baptist, Jewish, and Muslim. Uh, They spoke Slavic languages, Romance languages, Finno-Ugric languages, Baltic languages, and German. Uh, They lived in cosmopolitan cities like Berlin, and they lived in isolated rural communities without electricity or running water. Now, it's true that between 1945 and 1989, this otherwise very disparate group of European nations did briefly have several important things in common. Some of that resemblance was superficial, those posters with hammers and sickles and those mayday parades and the identical airlines which served poison instead of coffee, as some of you may remember. Um, but some of the resemblance was more serious. Uh, they all had to contend with a legacy of bad economic decisions. The nationalization of industry, central planning, state-dominated retail sector were universal. So were fixed prices, fixed exchange rates, and import-export controls. Indeed, it is actually incorrect to assume, as some do, that the fundamental nature of communist economics was so very different in Hungary or Slovakia or Armenia or Albania. Um, And it's a myth, for example, that there was no agricultural collectivization in Poland. Actually, larger Polish estates were converted to collective farms, as I know, because I own a house that used to be part of one. But since the fall of the Berlin Wall, the nations of what we used to call Eastern Europe have taken very, very different directions. Uh, the economist uh, Anders Ashland has written accurately that despite some of the theoretical debates which took place at the time, in practice there were only three economic paths which individual countries could take after the breakup of the Soviet Empire. They could, like the Poles, the Czechs, the Slovaks, Hungarians and Bolts. Choose the path of re- relatively radical reform leading to liberal democratic capitalism. They could, like Russia, Ukraine, Armenia, Moldova, or Kazakhstan, become rent seeking states, crony capitalist societies whose businesses made money not through economic competition but through a symbiotic relationship with state bureaucrats. Or they could, like Turkmenistan and Belarus, Reestablish state despotism and swap the language of Marx for nationalism and brand new cults of personality. Now, these aren't clean divisions. Romania and Bulgaria, we can argue about them, started out with more crony capitalism, have become more liberal over time. Russia started out with some of the most radical reforms in the region, but lapsed into crony capitalism when the reforms stopped. Uh, Yugoslavia broke up into bits, each of which took a different path, and some of which were dragged down tragically by civil war. But my point is that there wasn't and there isn't anything else. So there's no state in the region which selected a happy path between communism and capitalism because there wasn't such a path. You know, there was no third way. Those countries which attempted a kinder or more gradualist transition simply got stuck with more corruption. If their business elite then learned how to make money from controlled prices, export controls, or state sales of natural resources, and if those same business elites took over politics, then crony capitalism became permanent. Now, few of the successes and few of the failures, this is very important to remember, were either predictable or predicted. So in 1990, nobody guessed that Estonia would become a mini tiger or that Russia would be eventually ruled by a cabal of billionaires. Nobody imagined that Poland would be a more stable member of the European Union than Hungary. On the contrary, the predictions for for Poland, which is a country which had a spotty history of democracy in the past and had at that time one of the worst performing economies in the region, were overwhelmingly negative. I looked up some of them uh, a few days ago, reminded myself that one writer in Foreign Affairs predicted in 1990 that a rapid transition to capitalism would produce instability in Poland, largely because Polish democracy would soon lead to the return to power of a 1930s-style right-wing mob. As it turned out, immediate post-war history was not a good guide to any country's post-1989 success, uh, nor was its religion, its geography, or its size. When examined closely, neither the alleged Catholic-Protestant divide, nor the mythical Asiatic cult of the dictator stands up to scrutiny either. You know, If religion is so important, why has Catholic, Protestant, Hungary lately fallen into such a funk? If geography is so important, why has post-communist Mongolia recently become, started to do so well economically? Uh, to take an older example, the once profound divisions between culturally and ethnically identical East and West Germany can't be that simply explained away either. So what then was the source of success and failure? Why were some able to carry out radical reforms while others did not? As it turned out, there were a few historical experiences that mattered a great deal, uh, but they weren't necessarily the ones that anybody pointed to in 1990. It made a very big difference, uh, for example, uh, whether or not um, a country had been dominated by Soviet-style communism for 40 years or for 70 years. So a clear line now divides the region between two camps, those countries that were part of the Soviet bloc uh, since 19, only since 1945 and those which joined around about 1918. And this line not only separates the old Warsaw Pact bloc from the Soviet Union, it also puts the Baltic states and western Ukraine on one side and Russia and eastern Ukraine on the other. So this was a line, in other words, between societies which still contained people who'd been brought up with pre-Soviet values and those which did not. There was also a difference, as it turned out, between those countries which had an active opposition movement in the 1970s and 1980s, or at least an active and self-organizing civil society and those which did not. So slovenly and inefficient dictators like General Jaruzelski produced more active citizens than those like Nikolai Ceausescu, who were still using terror to suppress their critics in 1988 and 1989. In fact, if I were to isolate the single most important factor in determining whether a given post-communist country succeeded or failed in its transition to liberal capitalism, I would point to this. It was the existence or absence of an alternative elite. And by alternative elite, I mean something specific, so not just a few economists, but a larger class or group of people who had worked together in the past who had adopted a a clear alternative set of values and who, by 1989 or 90, were at least somewhat prepared for government. They'd thought about it. Uh, In Poland, the alternative elite existed because memories of pre-communist past were recent enough to be real, because of a national tradition of resistance, most recently against Nazi occupation, but historically against other empires, Uh, because the Polish economy was so full of holes that black marketeers, i.e. small capitalists, could operate freely, Uh, because borders were relatively open so that these black marketeers could trade, Uh, because those relatively open borders meant that people knew how life was lived in the western half of Europe, Uh, because the Polish Catholic Church was not totally destroyed, and thus it could provide both an alternative source of values as well as a physical space for regime opponents to meet, because Cardinal Wojtyla was elected Pope John Paul II and because he came to Poland in 1979 and drew mass crowds and so on. Now, I could make a similar list in Hungary and East Germany, indeed in Lithuania and Estonia, and some of these contributing factors might, if you want to put it like that, be connected, connected to a country's particular historical destiny or culture or location, but some of them were accidents. If the existence of an alternative elite was important, however, it mattered even more that this alternative elite had a clear sense of direction. And in the case of the Central Europeans, there was never any doubt about this direction. When working as a journalist in this region in 1989 and 90, people told me again and again and again, we want to be normal. And what was normal? Normal at that time meant Western Europe. It meant Western European democracy and capitalism, Western European welfare state even, Western European political parties, Western European media. There was no desire for experimentation. The question was, do we move fast towards Europe or do we move slower towards Europe? And as I've noted, those who moved fast who, who moved faster sometimes avoided being stuck halfway. Another important ingredient for success was the lack of natural resources. And here, I'm not referring merely to the famously negative impact which oil and gas have on exchange rates and entrepreneurship and economic diversification. I am talking about the enormously negative impact which natural resources have on political life in new democracies. If there are no oil wells to steal, then no one will try to manipulate the political system so as to make it easier to steal them. (laughs) Um, There are one or two oligarchs, of course, in Poland and the Czech Republic and elsewhere, mostly connected to the gas industry, but there isn't a whole class of them dedicated to corrupting the state in order to enrich themselves, as there are in Russia and to some extent elsewhere in Ukraine and Kazakhstan. Now, I could point to some other ingredients of success as well, but they are actually mostly connected to the ones I've mentioned already. It was very important, for example, to have a free press or even a free-ish press uh, which at least aspired to some higher standards of reporting and which could therefore ensure a free flow of reliable information. But this, of course, was the byproduct of the alternative elite and its Samis publishing wing, if it had had won. Uh, it was also very important that the new rulers of the new democracies had, at least to some degree, thought about what they wanted to do before they arrived in power. So all through the 1980s, Polish, Czech, and Hungarian economists had been holding informal meetings to discuss how it might be possible someday to privatize and decentralize their economies. And at the time, these were pipe dreams. These conversations were theoretical. And indeed, this particular group of economists was thought at that time to be rather fringe and rather weird. Uh, But when they suddenly and unexpectedly got the opportunity to carry out their plans, sometimes by luck in some cases, they weren't always the first choice for the new job of finance minister, uh, they were ready. So Poland's first finance minister, Lezik Baltzorowicz, was one of them. Václav Klaus, until recently the Czech president, was another. Um, But again, I suspect this was once again the byproduct of the fact that they all had a clear sense of direction. Where do we want to go? Western Europe. How do we want to get there? fast. Much less important, as it turned out, were the precise techniques deployed. So in particular, although there's a lot of investigation, and there are now many books about this written, the exact method of privatization, although this was a central topic, maybe even the central topic of debate and discussion at the time, wasn't in the end nearly as important as the speed with which privatization was conducted and the perceived fairness of the process. Voucher privatization, stock market privatization, all of these could work as long as they were conducted more or less quickly and more or less transparently. Um, I think I'm correct in saying that in retrospect, no one was happy with the way privatization went in their countries, and at the time, everyone predicted disaster. But those who were the most unhappy were the ones who didn't do it at all. Um, Perhaps then I could add one more element to the picture. Um, Whoever took charge in 1990, 1990, had to understand the need for a radical break with the past. So, and former communists such as Ian Iliescu, the president of Romania in 1990, were generally speaking worse at understanding this than the former opposition leaders such as Tadeusz Mazowiecki, who was Prime Minister of Poland in that same year. Um, It was also very good if whoever took charge did so in an atmosphere of serious crisis. So Poland in 1990 seemed to be deteriorating rapidly. Hungary, by contrast, wasn't that bad. Uh, Bulgaria wasn't that bad. Um, And successive Hungarian and Bulgarian governments have long felt that all they really had to do was make a few adjustments. In practice, this means that Hungary, although um, it's it's very much a member of the Western camp, Western went the same direction, it's never been able to shake its addiction to borrowing and budget deficits. Many key institutions remain unreformed. Worse, Hungarians seem permanently sunk in perpetual gloom, though it's possible that they were always like that. Um, A close, very close Hungarian friend of mine, um, when we were once discussing the imminent Eurozone crisis, threw his hands up in the air and said, why is it, he wailed, that every club we join immediately falls apart? (laughs) Um, But I'm not Hungarian, I'm American, um, and therefore I'm more interested in the optimistic half of this story. So let's step back for a minute. It's now 2013. Uh, Who thought in 1989 that I would be standing here making a speech uh, not only about how Eastern Europe survived, but how the Eastern half of Europe has in general survived a major financial storm better than the Western half? And who would imagine that I would now be able to say this? Perhaps there are now more lessons that the West can learn from the East rather than vice versa. Uh, A few months ago, I made this point at a conference in Vienna to a crowd which listened very indulgently but unbelievingly, and they fired a couple of mocking questions at me afterwards. You know, just as I've done tonight, I established the fact that Eastern Europe as a meaningful political concept has disappeared, that the nations of what used to be called Eastern Europe have gone their separate ways, and everyone nodded, but they didn't draw any obvious conclusions. Uh, And no wonder, in Austria, maybe even more so than here, although here too, the notion of Eastern Europe does live on as a kind of prejudice. You know, when newspapers or use the expression Eastern European, it's usually code for primitive and backwards and possibly criminal. I always notice this when there are some murder suspects or somebody's committed a crime. They say, well, they had Eastern European accents, you know, <laughs> as if speakers of a Latin language like Romanian or a Slavic language like Bulgarian all sounded alike. Um, there's also a tendency, especially in this country, to think of Eastern Europeans as belonging to one of two categories. So, there are either Romanian Bulgarian laborers on the one hand, whom we want to keep out of the country because they might work harder than the natives, or Russian oligarchs on the other, for whom all doors are open, all visas are available, <laughs> and to whom everything is for sale, and around whom are clustered dozens of British lawyers, bankers, real estate agents, and other middlemen, you know, eyes shiny with hopes of big profits. Um, that, kind of, that kind of prejudice makes it more difficult for the western half of the European continent to draw lessons from what we used to call the East, but that's also foolishly short-sighted. Uh, so think about it. Within Europe, there are now several countries which managed to turn utterly disastrous economies around. They're really disastrous. I lived in Poland in the late 80s. I promise you there was nothing to eat except dried crackers. So... Um, Which they have, and these countries have, while doing so, evaded the temptations of the far right and the far left. They've carried out major structural and political reforms during periods of political tumult. Uh, Better still, one or two of them recently appeared to repeat this feat for a second time during one of the worst international banking crises in memory. So now let me look closer, as promised, um, at the very instructive comparison between Latvia and Greece. In the wake of the 2008 crash, the Latvian government slashed public spending, fired a third of its civil servants, and reduced salaries of those remaining while refusing to inflate the currency. GDP declined dramatically, falling 24% in two years. But as their economy plunged in 2010 and 2011, there were no strikes, no protests, or minimal protests, there were some, no fury. Um, The Latvians, who have been occupied by others for so much of their history, see economic viability as a matter of life and death, a key component of national sovereignty. Not only did the nation eventually accept the need for a change, of course, it re-elected the prime minister who imposed it. And then the recovery did begin. The Latvian GDP is now growing more than 5%, and the budget deficit has been dramatically reduced. In Greece, by contrast, relatively smaller budget cuts have led to a relatively smaller GDP decline of 18% since the crisis began, and they've also led to major strikes and riots. Uh, The Greeks have voted their politicians out of office more than once. They formed a new fascist party to compete with the already existing far-left parties, and they have thrown petrol bombs at banks. Now, there are some technical explanations for the differences, Budget cuts were applied differently in Greece and Latvia. Uh, The Latvian ones hit bureaucrats hard, but pensioners less so. Um, Perhaps more importantly, they also made the biggest cuts right away. So as they had learned in 1990, drawing out a crisis creates more pain over time. Uh, The Greeks, by contrast, have made cuts slowly, and they never convinced either their public or their creditors of their commitment. Uh, Bureaucrats are protected while pensioners suffer. Uncertainty persists. People and capital continue to flee the country, and although the crisis has stabilized, it is not resolved. There are also political differences. Um, uh, uh, Latvian politicians did explain to some extent to their fellow citizens the need need for cuts, and they reminded them, as I say, of this need to preserve national sovereignty. Um, By contrast, none of the Greek political parties has found a way to persuade the majority of Greek voters um, of the need to change their, their their way of thinking, and instead anti-German rhetoric is at an all-time high. Why, then, don't the Greeks try instead to learn earnestly from the Latvians, as the Latvians once tried earnestly to learn from the French or the British? Well, I suspect, again, that the explanation lies in the misleading term Eastern Europe and in those connotations of backwardness. But the world changes in strange ways, and one of the strangest is the way in which this same term, Eastern Europe, now seems to have a completely different connotation when used in places like Tunisia or Libya. Uh, I've been to North Africa several times uh, since the Arab Spring, and every time I'm there, I find that people are extremely interested in me, but not because I'm American or not because I'm a journalist. Uh, They're interested in me because I have a long-standing connection to Poland, a country which they consider, yes, a role model. So in this lecture, I've talked about some of the reasons for the success and failure of different states, which were once known as Eastern Europe, a subject which properly belongs to international history, the faculty which I've been so happily part of here at the LSE. But now I'm going to conclude by leaping into the neighboring and competing faculty of international relations and ask whether the experience of what used to be Eastern Europe might hold some insights, not only for Western Europe, but for other parts of the world and maybe even particularly for North Africa. Now, before doing so, let me be absolutely clear. Uh, The culture of Eastern Europe and the culture of North Africa are not similar. Uh, There's no alternative elite in North Africa of the kind which existed in Poland and Hungary, and the majority does not believe that normal means Western European, although a minority do, as I've learned particularly in Libya. Uh, Although there were dissenters of many kinds in pre-revolutionary Egypt, they were largely suppressed, uh, except for those surrounding the mosque and the soccer pitch. And the result is that the Muslim Brotherhood was the only political party with any organizational capacity after 2011. And Egyptian soccer clubs are to this day the only organization that can reliably be counted on to create major protests as they have recently. Um, Yet neither the Muslim Brotherhood nor the soccer fans arrived in power with any clear ideas of a direction for Egypt's economy. There was no political or economic equivalent to the Polish and Hungarian economists who were plotting the post-communist future in the 1980s before it was possible, either there or in Libya, where the economy had been largely organized for the personal benefit of the Gaddafi family, and where a new leadership drawn from the exile community and leaders of the revolution is only now starting to analyze their country, starting from zero statistics and from scratch. In Tunisia, the friends and relatives of the old ruling family are are still thought to pull many economic strings, radical change is not in their interests. In many Arab states, therefore, the opportunity to start thinking about change arrived only in 2011, and what I tried to call the alternative elite is only just now beginning to form. So these revolutions, in other words, have just begun. And yet, there are similarities, and there are parallels, and there are common experiences worth exploring. And certainly, I've found in the last couple of years while talking with Tunisians, Egyptians and more extensively with Libyans that they are extremely interested in the Polish experience, though not because Poland's history resembles theirs in any way at all. Uh, They're just interested because the structural issues they face now are so similar. So here's an example. In 1990, Polish journalists, like their North African counterparts, had to create newspapers and new radio stations from scratch. They had to privatize the state media, They had to figure out how to write libel laws that would neither penalize journalists nor allow newspapers to publish irresponsibly. Uh, They had to write new laws governing the airwaves, uh, as well as laws on media ownership designed to prevent monopolies. So that's all technical stuff. Um, And, you know, the solutions they found, the polls found, were probably quite different from those that the Libyans will eventually discover. But the outlines of the problem are very much the same. So as a result, when I was in Libya last year, I discovered that Libyan journalists all wanted to hear how the Poles had done it and what the Russians had had also done so as to avoid it. Now, the Polish experience is also important in another sense. Those of you who follow these things will know very well that the British, the French, the Italians, and above all, the Americans are not necessarily the most popular nations uh, in North Africa, especially Egypt. And the World World Bank is not the most beloved of institutions. Hmm. Not everyone wants to be told what to do by the friends of their former dictator or by their former colonists. Uh, It's much more palatable and indeed much more relevant to take advice from a Czech or a Serbian who's already lived through a revolution and witnessed its aftermath. Uh, Instead of producing a stern lecture about freedom of the press, a Slovak can tell stories about what it's really like to be a journalist in a barren media landscape where all of the major television stations are still controlled by members of the old regime and where freedom of information is unheard of. Um, Instead of a theoretical harangue about the rule of law, they can explain how hard it is to get judges to think differently about their relationship to politicians and how hard it is to find lawyers willing to relearn their trade from scratch. So counterintuitively, the lessons which the former Eastern Europe can bring to North Africa are specific rather than general. So the Poles and Slovaks can't tell the Egyptians much that is relevant about, say, the place of religion in contemporary politics. But they can explain how they wrote their libel law. Uh, They can explain how different kinds of privatization might or might not impact the poor. Uh, They can say how judges might be trained quickly. They can say how a Freedom of Information Act might be composed. So I repeat, their experience is useful as theory, not as theory, but as practice, You know, here's how we wrote our commercial code, here's how we reformed our police force, here's how we brought new curriculum to our schools, or on the other hand, here's how we failed to deal adequately with the policemen of the old regime, here's how we failed to ensure that privatization was fair, here's how we failed to prevent our newspaper industry from being taken over by oil and gas oligarchs. Learning what didn't work is sometimes as instructive as learning about what did. But before you're able to learn anything, you have to be willing to listen. And this is where I'll end this evening by pointing out a paradox. You know, in many parts of the world, the transformation of Poland, Hungary, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, the Baltic states, and even Romania and Bulgaria are regarded as examples of miraculous success, peaceful transitions from dictatorship to democracy, examples to be studied and copied and learned from. No, this is an achievement which should be placed at the center of European foreign policy. Yeah, at this time of financial uncertainty, this is a sliver of hope that Europe can offer to the rest of the world. Look, here are some paths from poverty and dictatorship to prosperity and democracy. If that doesn't happen, and I'm afraid that it, it might not, uh, this is because in Europe, both in the West and sometimes in the East, the term Eastern Europe Eastern European is still in use uh, with all the old connotations and all the old prejudices attached. So does Eastern Europe still exist? No. So let's abolish the term or at least confine it to history. Thank you very much. Okay.
0: Thank you very much, Anne. Um, a number of hands have already gone up, but I'll abuse the privilege of chair straight away. Uh, some time ago, I think it was an American vice president whose name will remain – I think his name was Cheney. I posed the question about old Europe and new Europe, um, and it created all sorts of stirs. I remember at the time when he said it, 2003, I think, 2004 – do you, do you think whoever it was Rumsfeld, whoever it was, it was one of the two. But anyway, I could never make a distinction between either. <laughs> of them. Um, but thanks for the old uh, white sorry. guys. Oh yeah, thank you. <laughs> it, was that was that? Uh, I'll take. I was, I was 66 yesterday. I'll take that on the chin. Um, but is that something that speaks to you, in a way? Because I, I kind of got part of that. Not, not exactly, but does that? Is there, You may not want to use the word Eastern Europe. But the notion that, that there are still two Europes in some way, and that's what Rumsfeld was referring to.
1: Rumsfeld was referring to something slightly different, which yeah. was um, that bit of Europe which is interested in working with America in that particular context, yeah. and that also included at that time Britain and Spain. Sure. So it wasn't quite. Um, he, he was talking. He was talking in the con- political context of that time. I mean, I'm happy to talk about New Europe, except that again, I think it fails to express the profound differences within new europe you know the differences between poland and albania and romania and the czech republic are as different and as broad yeah. if not broader than the differences between poland and germany yeah. and they might they're probably even more extreme or between the czech republic and austria mm. so it's 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 mis- you know it's fine to talk about new Europe and some of the energy and we can sometimes sometimes it's in some contexts you can talk about states that join the EU later rather than earlier, but I'm not sure that it's it's a meaningful co- description of a concept. It doesn't it doesn't tell you anything about as I say Albania Poland Romania, you know and Lithuania. Okay. It, it's it's a. Uh, um, it, 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 it elides the fact that the, these states have become so very different, as they always were and as they briefly weren't only for 50 years.
0: Okay. I, leave it there, I apologize to Mr. Cheney for my historical faux pas. No, I don't. I'm, I'm sure he's terribly worried about my faux pas. Yeah, the lady at the back there, and then there's somebody at the back over here. So we take one and two. So one at the top one at the bottom. So, yep, yeah, please.
3: Thank you. Um, My name's Abby Innes, and I teach European political economy of Central Europe here. So I hugely enjoyed your speech, and I basically completely agree, but I'd like to play play devil's advocate for a moment, because you're basically echoing the Anders Aslan thesis that the Central Europeans should be seen as in a healthier state than Greece because they've managed extraordinarily harsh austerity measures with almost no political reaction. and the question is: Is that healthy? Is it healthy that a population has no political reaction to absolutely incredible economic pain? Uh, was it no political reaction? You, you yourself outlined the fact that compared to Greece, compared uh, to Greece, were, it's less. Yes, these were calm, uh, peaceable, you know, rational, pragmatic uh, reactions. So one. So the devil's advocate question is that, given that. In the Baltics, for example, the model of FDI they'd had was not kind of productive, high-complex uh, you know, manufacturing FDI. It was a lot of hot money going into speculative booms in non-tradable sectors like housing and construction and financial services. The fact that you can have a bust from that and there's no political reaction, I would suggest, implies a despair of political engagement. And there is a huge problem with trust in these political systems. So to play the devil's advocate argument, is it healthy or is it a problem? Right.
0: okay. Do you want to do several questions? Yeah, we'll just do a couple first, then. Yeah, a gentleman over here. Um,
4: thanks, Anne. Uh, Professor Rappelbaum. Um you, you made the very interesting distinction between um, uh, European countries who only had, say, uh, communism from uh, 48. Um, and then the East 45. Cent- 45, sorry. Well, 48 with. No, no, Czechoslovakia. 45. Oh, 45. <laughs> Read che- the book che- and you'll che- find Slovakia, that, okay. Czechoslovakia, February 48? <laughs> we'll argue about yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, don't worry about it. Um, yeah, if so, I can get, you know. So, um, and then uh, I was wondering about um, you, you talked about the, the, the third way wasn't um, possible. And uh, Václav Klaus, I've um, uh, just been looking at some of his own early 1990s uh, conferences. Um, said that um, in our understanding, we liberalized our economy much more than any other economy um, in the former Soviet bloc because of the failure of of 68 Um, and our understanding that it simply wasn't possible. Um, And I think Otto Schick, who is the father of uh, the the economist of socialism with a human face in 68, I think was maybe partially still critical of some of the very pro-market reforms which Klaus... Introduced um, in the 90s, um, and I'm just just wondering um, uh, uh, if you um, would maybe agree with uh, Klaus's view or not. Sort of the relationship. I hope you never to agree with Klaus yeah. but anything.
1: <laughs> what's what's the question?
4: So the relationship between the, the interpretation of yeah. of 68 and then the free market reforms which are pursued um, in Czechoslovakia. So the, sorry,
1: so the 68 failed, therefore we'll have free yeah. market.
4: I'll take Any those two. They're, they're big enough. They're,
1: they're actually related. Yeah, so I got well, that I too.
2: Yeah. You yeah. go for that. <laughs> 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 um, actually,
1: I mean, I, I mean, it's very hard to it's hard to make a link precise. I would actually, I would make not a link between sixty-eight and the reforms. I would make a link between the fact that Czech society had organized itself during 68 and reforms. In other words, that there was, um, again, it it, it was 20 years earlier, but that there had been a moment when people began to try to recreate the society for themselves. And that was a, and therefore the the rhetoric of doing that appealed to them. Perhaps yes, the failure of '68 also let reminded people that socialism with a human face didn't work. Although of course it didn't work in the Czech Republic, not because you know it was an economic failure, but because the Russian tanks came in. So that you, you could also have drawn a different conclusion, which, interestingly, I think is what Gorbachev, uh, the, the conclusion Gorbachev drew, he was in Prague in 1969, and. I, one of the one of his uh, one of the motivations for bringing around bringing about Glasnost and eventually so-called perestroika was this idea that you could reju- rejuvenate and regenerate you know inside within the communist system you could create change and then of course um, that didn't happen um, so you know may- maybe that's part of it I would question whether the Czechs are the most liberal and the most successful economy now I mean it, um, it all depends on which piece of the economy you look at, but that's a separate that's a separate issue. Um, was it a rational reaction, reform? I mean, this this is you know th- it all depends on how it's explained to people um, and how and how they understand the mistakes of the past. You know, one of the things you did have in in s- many Central European countries in 1989 and 1990 was a sense that you know the system is seriously bad and it seriously needs to change and we understand that there has to be some massive difference between now what happens right now and what life is going to be like next week and you know and there were, as i as i said there were, there had to be a kind of crisis you know that it's it's a catastrophe it has to all be changed and it has to be changed as fast as possible and i think you know you'll find that in in Poland in the early 90s there was a lot of dissatisfaction and some of it manifested itself later on in arguments about the 1990s and did the transition grow the right way and did the right people succeed and did former communists benefit from it too much quite a lot of that did happen and people were engaging with it but nevertheless there is a a fundamental sense that the you know, a deep transition is what we need because you know because we understand that um, the depth of the problem and I from what I understand this, there's a similar there was a similar dynamic in Latvia you know that you know, we understand that you know this—the boom was unsustainable, and it was coming from odd places. And we need to bring an end to it and, and reorient ourselves onto a kind of proper course. And if you can explain that to people, then um, they can go along with it. Uh, you know the, the other explanation, of course, is that Latvia is very cold and people don't want to protest in the street. But, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm I'm not an expert in Greece, um, where it's of course very warm and maybe very pleasant to protest. I don't
0: know. Um, it's very very climactic.
1: Yes. No I, no. I actually, I, and I don't actually believe in climactic no. determination of politics. So I take no. I take that back. Um, but you, you know, but there, but if you read. Um, you know, if you read the rhetoric of Greek politicians, it's clear that at least some of them are making an enormous amount of political capital by blaming the crisis on someone else or by refusing the need for deep change or, or, or some other. Um, and there seems to be a proportion of the population that goes along with that or is willing to vote for it or is so sick of politicians that they'll vote you know as, as they've just done in Italy um, for comedians or crazy new parties so So, you know, I I don't know. I haven't done a survey of who's more politically involved, Latvians or Greeks, but it would be very interesting to find out. And I wonder if you wouldn't discover that Latvians, you know, decided, right, it's a case of national sovereignty. We need to reorient ourselves. And and certainly that's what I remember from Eastern Europe in the the early 90s. Um, So, you know, but I haven't done the political science survey.
0: Okay, great. Uh, One of
1: hear? you, I I assume will. So some, yeah, some yeah. student uh, in here.
0: The gentleman in the middle. Good thesis topic. Yeah. Fast. Uh, yeah, get along, quick. Yeah. Anybody around? Somebody up there? Where's 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 the person with the mic? Yeah. Chuck it over to this chuck. Well, don't chuck. It, just pass it. Yeah. Yeah. Speedy, speedy. Great. Where am I? Who's the man with the mic now?
2: Go for it, please. Uh, hello, my name is Matthew Mahowski and I'm currently at the UK House of Parliament. Um, I would like to ask you one question with regards to um, Poland's relationship, historical relationship with uh, Russia. Uh, Poland is certainly moving further towards, uh, towards Western Europe. Many Poles definitely consider themselves Western Europeans, myself included, uh, but – Poland seems to have a bit of an issue with history. It, it, it sometimes is stuck. No. It's sometimes stuck in history. And I'm just wondering, how do you see Poland's relationship at the moment with Russia? Um, just last year, obviously, we had the Poland's president uh, talking about the um, missile um, defense systems uh, being put in place sometime in the future. Um, I'm just wondering, how is Poland now dealing with its uh, communist history?
0: Okay. Question about history. And there was another one. Of you. Uh, yeah. Yes. My name is Ludwig. Thank you so much for the talk. Um, I have a question about um, well, what you would call the former Eastern European countries and their political stance within Europe and in relation to Western Europe. From as I see it, as I'm at the moment, Western the Western European countries still seem to dominate the, um, the discussions within the EU. And do you see um, countries such as Poland coming to become far more important? within mm-hmm. the discussions within the EU and uh, mm-hmm. in uh, how long a uh, time span do you think that would happen? Okay, let's just deal with those two. Poland has a history problem. <laughs> Could you explain why? And why does the West still dominate inside the EU? To right. sum up briefly. Well,
1: I'm in a slightly awkward position because the Polish foreign minister is in this room. You can't see him from up there. And so yes. I, I'm, I'm just answering... Just imagine he's not here. I'm answering questions that really ought to be directed to him. Um, uh, is Poland becoming more important? Well, Yes. yes, yes. We, we um, po- Poland dealing with the history. Actually, uh, in my experience, the Poles—it's um, this is this is—I did a whole seminar on this question of dealing with history, and it, it, it can take a long time to, to describe and discuss. But the 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 Poles do at least have an open argument about history that is conducted in the media and um, sometimes it takes unpleasant political forms and sometimes political parties tries to use pieces, pieces of history to push particular agendas but um, but, there is an, but there is an airing of it which is not entirely unhealthy um, I mean after all they do have an awkward relationship with Russia and they do have an awkward relation with Germany and it's not that long ago and people remember it and so no point in passing it over and saying it didn't happen I mean there's, they had a very bad 20th century um, <laughs> You know, the, the the trick always is for countries to find ways to overcome their historical problems. And there are a couple of very good examples in this part of the world of countries that have managed it. And actually, my favorite is really Poland and Ukraine, um, who also fought each other very bitterly and really quite brutally at the end of the Second World War um, and have had a history of moving borders back and forth, um, uh, uh, much, it's one of Europe's really forgotten tragic stories, the, the Polish-Ukrainian conflict. And a few years ago, sometime ago, actually, it's more than a decade ago, the, the Polish and Ukrainian historical establishments actually sat down and decided they were going to start publishing jointly books of documents. And these are very thick, um, you know, rather dry collections um, of books about documents, about all of the pieces of their joint history that are disputed, and they and they have been doing this um, for quite some time now. And while doing so, have been going, you know, there have been conferences and, and so set up. And while it, it all sounds fairly dry and unimportant, this did has been the basis for really a very deep relationship between Poland and Ukraine. I was beginning with the Polish president's. A role in the Orange Revolution but actually moving right up to the present with there's a kind of constant dialogue back and forth and that's partly possible because this discussion you might even say rather obsessive discussion of history and a lot of it's about cemeteries and who owns them and what happened in one particular village you know but if you can somehow air it it's not I would say it's not the worst example of in, in that part of the world of countries not being able to deal with their history uh, is Poland becoming more important? Uh, they would like to be. <laughs> um, th- one of the oddities in, of recent changes in the EU and shifting in balances of institutions at the European Parliament has become more important. And one of the things that that means is that uh, countries that have larger populations have more deputies. And after the recent European elections, Poland's uh, ruling party suddenly woke up and discovered it's the second largest party in the center-right coalition um, in the EPP, the European People's Party in Europe, and suddenly it's very important. So it, it's, it's MEPs. I know the British hate their MEPs, and, um, but some of you maybe aren't British. But, but you know, Poland now has this – suddenly everybody woke up, wow, it's a big country. It has outsized weight inside the parliament, and – the numbers and are, are beginning. It's still, of course, much poorer, and it has a much smaller economy than the German economy or the French economy. Um, but it, it has a role both as a leader in, in Central Europe and in, um, in, 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 in the Visegrad Group, uh, and it has also a role increasingly as a, um, you know, as a sort of extra voice in the way. I mean, it's, it's the same size as Spain, and size does matter inside the European Union.
0: Does, does Poland's position in the, in the old Central, Central Eastern Europe, whatever you want to call it... So now we're, now we're going to have that, trouble naming it. No, 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 no. Let's does, call it does that, does that create resentments inside the old Commons block? It, it, in, I mean, I can't... I does can't. that create its own problems internal to, to that...
1: So I, think, I think the answer is sometimes yeah. there are some tensions, but often not uh, because, um, you know, there, there has been a lot of consultation between Poland and, and with, as I said, the Visegrad group, which is Poland, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, and Hungary. Um, and this, the smaller countries are often happy that, that there is a Poland that has sure. a slightly larger voice. And yeah. they, you know, although there's – it depends on who's in charge of – country X at a given moment. But there has been actually a lot of support for that yeah. idea that Poland is the representative of yeah. that
0: group. Nice. Okay. Great. I've got a hand over here. Tim Gartnash.: Timothy
2: Gartnash, uh, Oxford University. Um, and you're obviously absolutely right that the negative stereotypes of Eastern Europe persist to this day. Um, my family sometimes goes mushroom picking and we found a mushroom and looked it up in the guidebook and it said this mushroom is poisonous but used in Eastern Europe. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, wow. And, and you must have a small family. <laughs> <laughs> we, we didn't eat it. Um, nor did we use it, I hasten to add. Um, and actually, of course, these stereotypes go back a long way. If you look at Larry Wolf's wonderful book, Inventing Eastern Europe, he charts how they go back to the Enlightenment. And as you also rightly say, the term is correctly used for the period 1944 to roughly 1989, in which the countries of Central, East, Central, Northeastern, and Southeastern Europe were being crushed and homogenized by Soviet rule or Soviet domination. Um, and we need to help people to understand that. So here I'm going to bowl you a little googly. Oh, no, no. Uh, yes, sorry. But there we are. (laughs) Because in your wonderful book, Iron Curtain, describing precisely that process of crushing, the subtitle in the hardback edition is The Crushing of Eastern Europe, Mm. which is clearly wrong, because it was central and east-central Europe that was being crushed. too long a title. And Eastern Europe... But that is, I may say, so slightly frivolous. It's a publisher's objection. But the truth is, if we're going to help people to understand this, we have to help them to understand that it was something else and what was being created was Eastern Europe. So can we hope that in the paperback it might be called, correctly, The the crushing of Central Europe and the forging of Eastern Europe?
1: I'll pass that on. Yeah, I'll pass it's that on. a very good point.
0: Yeah, good, you're good to, to, to yourself.
1: You are right, as always, yes.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. no. You've you, <laughs> no, re- given in far too quickly to, <laughs> to the man from Oxford. Yeah. I,
1: I, as, as actually, as Tim
2: knows... Uh, wait, story. as
1: Tim knows, I had an enormous amount of trouble with the title for that book, and I had a conversation with him some years ago about what the title should be. And we all thought, Iron Curtain, it's, it was very hard to find the word for the process. You know, it was a... Process by which this region was totalitarianized, but there's nothing more boring than a title: the totalitarianization of. You know, and and we I, there was no word, and there was no there was no correct adjective, uh, verb actually. It's not an adjective that that for that process, and that was. Finally, what in desperation we came up with, but I, I should have obviously consulted you further on the subtitle. Yeah, okay, fine. <laughs> Did you have a
2: proper question, Jim
1: No, he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> no. Sorry, Michael, that's,
2: that, that's that's worse than a googly. It's a foul because <laughs> yeah, it, I it okay. is a proper question. because no, actually. He's right. I mean, it's a proper question. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, no, I mean, no, we right. do we do have yeah. what Anne has demonstrated is that we have a real problem of historical understanding. And the reversion of the term, the easy reversion of the term, in clichés, even in The Economist, dare one say, shows that there is a job of explanation still to be done. So that's why. No, he's right. That's
1: great.
0: Uh, Gentleman up here, please. Yeah.
2: Um, Eastern European countries have um, arguably achieved their success because of that, um, because of sort of, Western Europe had something they wanted. They they had EU membership. There was a carrot and stick approach, and uh, for lack of a better term, they they were kept on the straight and narrow by the prospect of entering the EU. And since they joined, uh, the record of some of them has been, um, you know politely said, patchy. I mean, if we witness Hungary. Just,
1: just as in Western Europe.
2: E, well, Yeah, but the, the problem is that um, in places like Hungary, things have, are, are taking some alarming terms and one would say that Western and e, the rest of the EU is not paying attention quite as much to what is happening in Eastern Europe. Now, is there a risk of spillover elsewhere? Um, what, what might happen next, I mean, if, in your opinion? If,
1: sure, and there's a risk of spillover from Berlusconi's Italy. And there's a risk of spillover from Greece. I mean, you know, there, you know with the, the point is that within Europe now, there, as, as there always are, there are some countries doing better and worse. But the reasons why they're doing better or worse, you know, are, there, are not necessarily to do with being Eastern or Western. I mean, you know, in, in its way, the recent Italian election was far more catastrophic than the last Hungarian election, which actually produced a stable majority. In fact, the problem in Hungary is that the ruling party has a, a majority that allows it to change the constitution because it was so successful in its bid for democratic election, whereas the Italians have just elected basically nobody. And, we, you, know, you know, one comedian and one, I don't even, two comedians, let's say. <laughs> It's very, you know, so you can ask the question: whose whose democracy is healthier? Is it Hungary's or Italy's? I mean, it's a, you know, d- depending on how you look at it. It's it's only when you look at it with the prejudice that the Eastern Europeans need special concern and problem, you know, and that so well the Italians they'll be all right. I mean, maybe the Hungarians, maybe they'll be all right. But, um, so, so so yeah, I, I'm not denying that Hungary has issues at the moment, but it's but I would. Be careful about attributing those to something about it being to the eastern, on the eastern side of what used to be the Warsaw Pact. Hmm.
0: Yeah, great. Uh, the uh, two questions directly in line here. I just take one, and then if you pass it back diagonally, the gentleman here, please, thanks,
5: uh, Eric Bergloff uh, EBRD. So I, I was inspired by Tim's question here on on or observation about mushrooms. Uh, so so um, really? I know a little bit about mushrooms, and and you know some mushrooms are. Poisonous in certain uh, soils and, and not in others. So the, you know, there are some mushrooms that you can eat in in Eastern Europe. <laughs> no, no. I, I, I'll come. I'll come into the question. Sorry. So so the question goes to your sort of final part of your um, of your um, uh, uh, lecture about you know the transferability of this. Mm. So so
1: which is it, something you know about
5: actually. Well, I, something that I am thinking a lot about uh, and and you know what what I felt your description was more saying that um, these countries have a lot to learn from Eastern Europe in the 90s. I mean, that I think what we really should remember, that these countries have a long transition history of their own mm. and actually have, in that sense, a lot more in common with those countries that you said got stuck in transition. Mm-hmm. So, so when you said now that there were sort of, what is transferable from one context to another was very limited in, 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 in your description. It was really about you said, individual laws and so on. Or is there something more about the Polish experience, for example, which is you know a more maybe inclusive uh, political system? Or is it, is it more than just these very technical uh, transfers that you talked about? Or is there something more that can be... In that very different context, different soil and different, you know, mushrooms maybe. I, 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 I,
1: I, let me,
0: I, let me I just. Sorry, can... hold that one for a moment and just pass the mic back to the chat just behind. Chair. Yeah, please.
6: David Kelly, LSE. Uh, thank you for a very interesting presentation. My question is, and is, does Eastern Europe still exist uh, if we limit it to Ukraine, Belarus, and Moldova? Would you agree to just reserve this term for these three countries? Because I think we do need a name for these three countries, and and near abroad, Eastern neighbourhood or in between is not necessarily satisfactory. Thank you. Okay. Do you want to say this?
1: I, I'm happy with the Eastern neighbourhood. Actually, I mean neighbourhood of the EU. Uh, you know, it's they're they're European, but and they're on the border, the sort of eastern border of, of Europe, of of what's now Europe, and we hope that someday they'll be in it, and then they'll be regular European countries mm-hmm. as well. So I don't. I didn't mind that, or a reference to the Eastern Partnership. Um, uh, Eric's question is very good, and I'm, I'm, at the, I'm in the advantageous position of having heard the Polish foreign minister speak on this very subject a couple of hours ago. Brilliant. So I can, I, I, can, I can try and paraphrase some of it. Um, I think, for, first of all, what I was saying about transfer of experience, I didn't think is necessarily small. I mean, I was... Um, it, what I, what I meant to say was, you know, the polls can't say we're exactly like you, so do everything that we do. What they can say is we face this kind of situation, this kind of economic problem, or this kind of problem with the media, or this kind of problem with reforming judges, and here's how we solved it. And therefore, these are the, you know, these are the kinds of questions that we encountered, and therefore you'll encounter these questions too. So um, you will encounter the problem that you can't fire all the judges. Um, or as Roger Scruton once said, the first thing that should be done upon, you know, at the time he once told the Czechs before '89, the first thing you have to do upon taking power is shoot all the judges. Well, it's not practical. So, so what, so what can you do? Well, there were programs, and some were better than others, and some people trained judges this way, and some did it that way, and so on. I mean, so so these are actually quite deep and important um, uh, issues. And they are you know but they don't necessarily answer the whole question for the society about which direction it wants to go, but if you're trying to reform this piece of it or that piece of it they're they're quite big and the other thing Poland can offer, and this i've seen um, you know I, I, is, is and it's funny because I saw this work in Poland a long time ago in 1990 in a different way, but um, as an as a argument about latin america but but What Poland can offer is just its example. You know, we did it. We were, you know, a basket case. We were um, run by a military junta. Uh, We, you know, therefore nevertheless managed over 20 years. I mean, although most people in Poland still think everything is a disaster. To the outside world, it looks like a success. We made this transition. We did it. You can do it too. And it's kind of, that's actually not a small... Thing and not a minor inspiration, and getting people in to pick apart how was it that you did it and what was it that you did, um, I think is, I think is an incredibly useful exercise. So it's it's not a. I didn't mean to imply that it was only technical. I just meant that, um, you know, that that because these are not culturally similar contexts, they can't say, well, here's what you know this is our relationship between the church and the state, and therefore you must copy it. But they can say, here's the set of problems that we faced in the judiciary in trying to figure out what to do with our secret police, in trying to figure out how to liberalize our media, you know, and so on and so on and so on. Um, (coughs) You're right that one of the problems in this part of the world is in some sense these are countries that were in transition, they were in a different, you know. On the other hand, you know, Libya feels to me very much like a post-revolutionary country where you have a new guard, to, you know, with a, with desire, wanting to create a different kind of society in the way that I felt in 1990, where people really want everything to be different from now. This is different in Egypt, maybe, but but um, you know, you know. As an example, look, the Eastern Europeans were in this same position. They made this total transformation. You can do it. It's it's an important kind of inspiration.
0: Thanks very so much. I've got a chap in
6: black at the back there, and somebody in the middle. Yep, please. Hi, how you doing? Uh, I'm Brett, and I'm live in New York. And uh, one of the things where I live is uh, extremely Polish in the neighborhood that I live in. And um, Greenpoint. Uh, I live in Middle Village, and I used to live in Ridgewood, right. which is when people get priced out of Greenpoint, they go to these places. Hang right. um, on, I'm interested in this real
0: estate. You <laughs> know
6: <laughs> uh, what? All I was wondering is. Is there any kind of organized relationship with, uh, with Poland, with the Polish government, with the diaspora? Because I know it's not just in <coughs> New York, it's also big in Chicago and other places as well. And have you seen signs of um, some of the immigrants in the U.S. returning to the country by, just because of seeing opportunities or assuming opportunities? Okay,
0: great. One about the diaspora. Yeah, and John uh, in the middle. I yeah, might sorry, make um, this the last question, actually. Doesn't sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm
6: from across the road over at, at King's um, doing Where? a class in modern history. Okay. Oh, right, okay, you mean <laughs> the one that's taking wow. over Kingsway?
0: The yeah, for, The foreign sorry.
6: land um, over there. But um, basically, um, my question is, I mean, you, your sort of analysis of, of the sort of East and West, sort of, you know, how, how these kind of Westernized and sort of moved, know sort of the historical trends that you could sort of pin down to its development, whether a country would succeed or not. Um, I was wondering if that method could be applied sort of elsewhere itself, or does it imbue too many Western concepts in order to sort of be reliable outside of the European comparison?
1: I, I, so I, I didn't quite understand it. So we'll, is the Eastern so, European experience reliable outside of yeah, the European context? Yeah, applying the same
6: sort of term. So, you know, the, mm. the elites um, sort of having a, an elite class that's already pre-planned its sort of way in, sort of the, the speed of privatization, can that be applied elsewhere, that kind of thing. I know it's a really boring and technical question. but
1: boring. Nothing's boring. Um, the Polish government, uh, yes, they have a very intense and complex and emotional relationship with their diaspora. They communicate with them in various ways all the time. And, yes, there are people starting to go back from the United States, or rather, actually, I think it's different in the United States that fewer Poles are going. They're, they, part, And partly that's because the Polish economy is doing slightly better, American economy doing slightly worse, and partly it's because it's so much more um, rewarding to go to countries, if you're going to want to work abroad for a few years, to go to Western Europe where you can work legally, and in the United States you still can't, so that's uh, a major difference. Um, I mean, I, the, the, the final question, it, you know, my answer is yes, there are lessons, even though it's different, and, you know, I, we can't I I really don't, that's why I'm I'm trying to put this in a framework. You know, no Burma is not the same as Poland and no Libya is not the same as Poland, Mm -hmm. Um, but there are similar experiences and similar circumstances that they all face. And no, you cannot transplant exactly what was done in Poland to Tunisia, but the Tunisians, and I, I know this from experience, I've watched it happen, the Tunisians are incredibly interested in hearing what Poles have to say. How did you do it? What were the components of it? Um, you know, and they want to know very specifically what were the issues that you faced in this area, in that area, in that area, and they, um, and they, and they, f- they find it interesting, even though it's it is not the same culturally. Um, I, w- I would hasten to add, there are successful transition examples of transition in other parts of the world. It's mean, this is longer conversation. Um, you know, you can talk about Indonesia, you can talk about many other kinds of countries, South Africa. Um, so it's not unique to Eastern Europe, but. Since um, Central Europe, sorry. That's, anyway, since, since, since that's our topic tonight, that, that's what I'll stick to.
0: Okay, I'm going to draw the proceedings here. This, I know a lot of other hands have gone up, but uh, there's some book signings that need to be done after this. I've got a couple of announcements, well, one announcement to make. Firstly, that Anne, as I said, is, is our number six. I should also give you uh, that our number seven. Uh, is uh, not exactly en route but has, has now been appointed and that is the historian and award-winning author Professor Timothy Snyder from uh, <laughs> Yale University who will in a sense take up where Anne has kind of left off. Um, T- Tim is a great historian of central... I-, I can't use the word Eastern Europe now, but Central Europe. Though I do notice the word Eastern Europe appears in quite a lot of the titles of his, of his books and, and Tim will be taking up the position after Anne uh, in, in October 2013, so I just want to make that official announcement tonight. And that's, a, that's a great appointment and uh, has some very big shoes to fill. However, Tim, t- I noticed that Tim, Tim is doing four lectures already planned out. Everyone has the word origins in it. Uh, the origins of nations, the origin of revolution, the origins of mass killing, oh. and the origins of the final solution, Eastern Europe and the, and the Holocaust. But anyway, we're really looking forward to welcoming Tim. Uh, after the great, the great year we've had with Anne. As I say, big shoes to fill. Uh, there is going to be a book signing outside, so Anne, you're going to go out there and sign some books. It only leaves it to me really to say thank you for all your great questions, turning up in great numbers, but a particular thanks to Anne. It's been a great person to have around. Ideas should be around for some time to come and for some great lectures, including the one tonight. So thank you
6: very much again, Anne.